America and Europe today, old books are old hat. Lewis spent a great deal of his critical energy in challenging chronological snobbery. If he did not always totally succeed, and Basil Mitchell in this volume asks us to remember that Lewis was not a professional philosopher, neither can it be said that he did not have major successes. In particular, it is difficult to think of a more brilliant defense of classicism in the face of modern subjectivist and relativistic thought than his The Abolition of Man. London, Collins Fount, 1978. We try hard in the C.S. Lewis Center not to fall into the reverse trap of romanticism, rejecting modernity because it is modern. But we have learned from Lewis not to be afraid to use the tools of critical analysis, which the modernists among us value above all else, against modernity itself. As Christians in the historic tradition, we have adopted a stance concerning the ideologies and fashions of our contemporary society, not of outright rejection, but of what Lewis called a due agnosticism. See Fernseed and Elephants in Fernseed and Elephants and Other Essays on Christianity, edited by W. Hooper, London, Collins Fount, 1977. If the C.S. Lewis Center has adopted from Lewis a critical stance in relation to modern culture, a stance which is itself rooted in historic Christianity, we've also tried hard to learn from Lewis the knack of writing for every man. This does not mean that we have Lewis's gift of communicating the gospel outside the academy, but it does mean that we are committed to reaching the intelligent layperson with the minimum amount of academic jargon. This is the third way in which the C.S. Lewis Center owes a debt to Lewis. A Christian for all Christians is, in a small way, an attempt to repay that debt. There is a time, as we have said, for remembering for respect, for love. It does not mean that we have abandoned our critical judgments or that all the people represented in this volume are enamored with all of Lewis's life and thought. A great many of us who might call ourselves Lewis buffs are often more judicious in our evaluation of Jack than A.N. Wilson in his book C.S. Lewis, A Biography, London, Collins, 1990, might lead one to suppose. Having said that, as editors, James Patrick and myself have not insisted on a uniform approach to Lewis. Our distinguished authors have been free either to defend Lewis, criticize him, or promote him. Our aim in this volume has been, first of all, to represent the full ecumenical depth of Lewis scholarship. Our authors come from England, continental Europe, and North America. They are Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, and Protestants. Second, we felt that a collection of essays in honor of C.S. Lewis demanded original material. Therefore, none of the essays presented here has appeared in print before. Third, and most important, A Christian for All Christians provides much information, some of which will be new even to Lewis aficionados, about the influences on Lewis's life and the formation of his thought as well as a critical evaluation of some of his books and beliefs. In ordering and arranging the essays in this volume, we've adopted a family resemblance or cluster approach.
beginning with biography and apologetics and moving on to literary and personal influences on Lewis. This focus, in its turn, gives way to one on the stories of Lewis and then on his philosophy and doctrine, and the essays proper end with a look at Lewis's philosophy of history. Acknowledgements We wish to thank Stephen Schofield, editor of the Canadian C.S. Lewis Journal, for his helpfulness during the compilation of this volume. Special thanks go to David Mackinder, the editorial officer of the C.S. Lewis Center, for his outstanding contribution in terms of bibliographical research and the copy editing of this volume. Introduction, James Patrick. On the afternoon of Friday, 22nd November 1963, Clive Staples Lewis entered the foothills of the Colored Lands and began the journey towards the center of the mountains that had shaped his imagination at least since 1931, when his own journey from Puritania to the high western hills, allegorized in the pilgrim's regress, had become a Christian quest. Lewis died in the house he loved, the kilns at Headington, which by then held the memories of a lifetime. The house had been purchased in 1933 with the legacy that came to the Lewis brothers, Jack and Warren, at the death of their father, Albert Lewis. Lewis had shared the kilns with Mrs. Moore and her daughter Maureen until Maureen's marriage in 1941 and Mrs. Moore's death in 1951. When Major Warren Lewis had retired from active service in 1930, he had moved into the house with his brother and the Moores, and then from 1956 to 1960, the Kilns saw the unexpected happiness of Jack Lewis and Joy Davidman, the American poet he had married from pity, who became at last the crowning adventure of his life. But in the autumn of 1963, those memories and glories were past, and Jack Lewis set sail without regret. He had, he told his brother, finished the work he had been given to do. And so C.S. Lewis passed from the church militant and the university argumentative here on earth into the kingdom of God's mercy and fruition. He had finished his work, but readers were hardly finished with Jack Lewis, and after 1963, sales of his books continued to soar, especially in the United States. The essays that follow are reflections on the meaning of C.S. Lewis after more than 25 years. The passing of time inevitably creates a shifting perspective, and Lewis, if his work is to live, can escape the historians no more than any other man whose writing has made his mind a public property. Remarkably, there is still no important revisionist historiography. Questions have been raised about the effects on him of the death of his beloved Joy Davidman, about his interest in orthodoxy and his relation to the Roman Catholic Church. But these are footnotes. The central themes of Lewis's life's work are as clear after more than 25 years as at the time of his death. Each of his apologies rings the changes on the same great themes. The reliability of reason as a guide to God, the pattern of Christian moral life, the recovery of imagination for Christ, faith as the fruition of desire, and the reliability of the broad and humane Christian tradition. Yet, to enumerate these intellectual contributions, and others could certainly be included, provides no answer to the question, 
Who was Jack Lewis, the short, stocky man in baggy flannels, who became the summary intellect of English-speaking Christendom and the 20th century's most read Christian apologist? He was a great teacher, at least for many, a successful defender of the faith, and a scholar of influence and reputation. But none of these titles captures the significance of his life and work. Perhaps this is because, in the most fundamental sense, Lewis was the critical link in a tradition of English and European learning which he would have been the first to proclaim greater and more significant than anything he or his friends might think or write. His career was the fulfillment of the English Romantic tradition. The very word Romanticism provokes complex meanings. Lewis himself offered eight definitions of Romanticism in the 1943 preface to the Pilgrim's Regress. But at its root, the Romantic movement in England was not a theory or point of view or a single idea, but was, at its heart, an intellectual campaign for the recovery of the tradition which had formed Europe from St. Augustine to Spencer. Beginning with Coleridge, taking momentum from sources as divergent as Augustus Pugin, Thomas Hill Green, and the Lux Mundi authors, there was, after 1800, a broad tendency in English letters and scholarship to overcome Hume, Hobbes, Herbert, and Wollstone by appealing to an older, more deeply rooted tradition which was necessarily Christian. In England, Access to the tradition rooted in the time before scholasticism was displaced and religion reformed was, especially after the polemics of the Elizabethan reign and the religious tensions of the 17th century, difficult and unfashionable. The Middle Ages had been banished from English experience, the old holy doctors of the first millennium not faring much better than the scholastics. The word Gothic was used by Thomas More in the 16th century and by the London diarist John Evelyn in the 17th as a pejorative describing the life and art of the Germanic, barbarian, pre-Renaissance civilization. Then in the 19th century the classic period of Western Christendom came roaring back, born on the wings of architecture and poetry, then rooted more substantively in theology and philosophy. Oddly, perhaps, this movement was the activity of scholars, poets, and architects, and coincided with the failure in popular culture of the last living reminiscence of the world of moral discourse presupposed by Shakespeare and Hooker. Since 1500, the dominant English religion had become customary, then conventional, then, by the reign of Victoria, merely aesthetic, so that the sentiments expressed in romantic poetry and Gothic revival churches were likely to be as progressive as the forms of art and poetry were antique. About 1870, it seemed evident that the native empiricism, Hume, perfected by Mill, and Bacon, fulfilled by Charles Darwin, would occupy the intellectual terrain unopposed. Looking back across the 19th century, Lewis and his teachers and friends interpreted the change of mind and heart that took place in English thought and culture about 1830, as a great intellectual divide that separated them from the entire classical, medieval, and Renaissance past. Lewis, Charles Williams, and J.R.R. Tolkien believed that there was more distance between themselves and Jane Austen than between Jane Austen and Plato. 
Thus, they inevitably saw themselves as apostles of tradition, and it was Lewis who succeeded best in rejoining the England of George VI and the National Institute of Coordinated Experiments to the world of Macrobius, Dionysius, and Hooker. In his famous Cambridge inaugural lecture, De Descriptioni Temporum, Lewis called himself Old Western Man and compared himself to a dinosaur, a rare survival from another age, capable of testifying to a time forgotten by his modern beholders. C.S. Lewis was the best of the great men born in the twilight of the Victorian age who inspired a kind of second renaissance, a grand attempt to recover the great tradition regarding things human and divine at a time when it was fading. Lewis sensed himself becoming an alien in a time and place occupied by intellectual and spiritual barbarism. This was the common stance of the great men of the 1930s. T.S. Eliot, Jacques Maritain, Etienne Gilson, R.G. Collingwood, a whole company of Thomist revival scholars, as well as Owen Barfield and J.R.R. Tolkien. Of this distinguished company, none was, as an apologist not simply for past thought, but for the great tradition, as successful as Lewis. One must reach back to G.K. Chesterton, whose work deeply influenced Lewis, to find another apologist as powerful. And the reason for that power was the depth and breadth of the tradition Lewis represented. E.F. Carrot, later Lewis's philosophy tutor and mentor, wrote that when Lewis took the examinations for Oxford in 1916, he was the most widely read undergraduate Carrot had ever interviewed. This ability to comprehend and mediate the tradition lent Lewis's work its power. Behind the space fiction trilogy was the immense erudition collected in the lectures that comprise the discarded image. Behind the screw-tape letters was the entire moral tradition of the Carolyn Divines, and behind them Hooker, Aquinas, Augustine, and Chrysostom. So the power of Lewis's writing was its ability to capture the very wisdom that first the Enlightenment and then the new philosophy of his undergraduate days had rendered obscure. To gather this up that nothing be lost and to make it the wellspring of his 20th century apology. And in that sense, Lewis's freshness always strikes one anew. He had few ideas of his own and claimed no originality. But for him, knowledge was not simply knowledge of old books. Lewis's learning was rooted in a source.